Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. You must listen to the open loops, a theme park for absurd beliefs and systems of integration between the mind and the creative spirit. Open loops. Today on Open Loops, we have, coming all the way from the West Coast, Britt Shefflin. She is a clinical hypnotherapist and author of a very interesting title book. And and this is uh, one of her specialties. The, the book's called Human Dreaming, The Dynamics of Dream Interpretation, uh, Combining Dream Therapy as well as, I mean, other specialties in hypnotherapy, joyous childbirth, releasing fears, phobias, a hypnotherapist, some of my favorite people to talk to. Uh, Britt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Greg. I'm delighted to be here today. Yes, yes. You are one of the ones that has proclaimed that you often get into mind-bending, mind-blowing conversations. Um out of curiosity, you know, before we get into that, I mean, so hypnotherapy, hypnosis is already so mind blowing. Dreams are so mind blowing. I mean, what do you what do you think is your what is the thing that you find in life you're getting into way too long conversations about that people are just enraptured by? Yeah, well, I should caveat that by saying that most of these conversations occur in my head. <laughs> so, so you're interested in yourself. That, yeah, that's cool. Well, I'm I'm interested in the conversations that go on in my mind, but um, you know, whether other people find them as interesting as I do, I don't know. But they are mind blowing concepts to me. So, wow. you know, with hypnosis and hypnotherapy, as you're well aware, it's all the subconscious mind. Um, meaning the things that are kind of automatically programmed in, you know, for lack of a better term, into our brains. And so that that's kind of like the autopilot part. Um, yeah. And dreams are part of that. So although when we're dreaming, it is different parts of the brain that are active than than when we are in, in hypnosis. But even when we're completely out of hypnosis in a beta state, we are still, we still have access 
to the subconscious. So anything that you do easily and automatically, like, you know, you don't have to decide which sock you're putting on your feet in the morning first. It just happens, you know, those habits that you've developed. So anything coming from habits and dreams, you know, it encompasses a huge, huge portion of our lives. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of people have different definitions of this. I mean, I'm curious, you use subconscious. Some people would say unconscious. I know there's always debates about this. I mean, you know, there's some hypnotists out there that say, eh, I'm sick of the debates. I don't care. Call it whatever you want. Who? I don't care how you define hypnosis, but but I do care because I think it's interesting. And I, I actually think the more we delve into each person's definitions um, and, and the reason, I mean, you understand as a hypnotist, every word you're using matters. Um, so I am curious. I mean, do you differentiate? Do you think you have a different understanding of of subconscious versus what an unconscious is? And and um, either way, how would you define those terms? Well, I would I mean, I do use them interchangeably. I just I typically use yeah. subconscious because that's the first one that, you know, comes to my mind. But um, it doesn't really bother me if people want to use one or the other. I don't have a strong feeling about it. Just from my training, it's generally subconscious. Um, I believe that unconscious was the original term, um, you know, from Mesmer days and and thereafter. And then subconscious, if I'm if I recall correctly, it was a little bit later of a term. Um, you know, subconscious being below the level of consciousness. Yeah. And unconscious could kind of mean two things, right? It could mean the same thing as subconscious, those easy automatic behaviors, breathing, blinking, you know, things that we do without even really thinking about it. Um, but it could also be like completely unconscious, like lights out, right? You know, any experience that you have down in like the Delta state. So for me, unconscious has two definitions and subconscious being an interchangeable with one of the definitions of unconscious. So so that feels more. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, when I think subconscious, I feel that it's a little more. I, I It's a little more mainstream. People accept it more. You can go into a corporate boardroom and say these days, weirdly enough, uh, you could say access your subconscious to make more powerful decisions to better your business and people look at that as a normal thing versus if you're talking about like access your unconscious that's a little it's a little harder to to stomach and and it's a subtle difference but I, I i suppose that the mainstream aspect of subconscious being equal to creativity which course is related to dreams um definitely well i i could see how people might see you and feel a little less oh what, what's, what's she gonna do to me when she knocks me out you know i mean so I, I i'm with you there i think there's a valid case to make, be made for subconscious um do you in in your experience in your training I mean, you mentioned, you know, the automatic functions and the breathing and the stuff like that. Uh, I'm curious, you know, some people give a lot of power to the subconscious. Some hypnotists say it records every single thing. And I know there have been studies that can disprove that and memory is constantly changing and whatnot. But, but, you know, I mean, you're doing dream work. You're doing a lot of 
different kinds of hypnotherapy. Um, in your experience, I mean, how much power does the subconscious have? What do you think it's quote unquote storing and keeping mm-hmm. track of? Yeah. Well, I think for a small subset of the population, they might record more than others. You know, people with um, perfect memory, for example, you know, perfect recall. Yeah. Like they can recall every word of a book they've ever read. You know, that's not common for most of us. Um, but, you know, I feel like those people are probably able to store more bits of information in their brain than we are. But that is one of the functions of dreams is to kind of kick out the information that isn't necessary that we, you know, processing information from the day, from our past, whatever it is, and kind of combining it all to make sense of everything. And that is one of the functions of dreams is to let go of some of that stuff and then decide what else to store to keep us safe. You know, that is one of the the functions of the subconscious is to keep us alive, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you trust your subconscious? I do. Yeah. I mean, of course, there are things that I want to change just like anybody else. And so I will actively do things to alter my trajectory that my subconscious is on because something that may have kept me safe in the past might no longer apply. You know, a lot of our fundamental way that our subconscious works is set from zero to seven. And we don't really have a whole Mm -hmm. lot of choice in changing those kind of fundamental ways of being, but we can change a lot of the nuance. Right. Um, So if, you know, there was, you know, maybe I had like a bad experience with a dog, right? I can change that. I can change my perception of of that. Um, At the subconscious level. At the subconscious level. Yes. Wow. Now, I mean, I I have to ask about that because what is that? (laughs) Does that require you to have gone into a hypnotic experience with a practitioner do you believe that anybody has the ability to hypnotize themselves i mean that self-hypnosis is tricky because you've got the conscious mind directing the subconscious and and some hypnotists say you can never really go as deep just hypnotizing yourself you still need a trained professional to get you there um but but what is your experience about this kind of work i mean when when it comes to working on yourself what are you able to do at this point Yeah, you know, I mean, I would definitely go to another hypnotherapist for a lot of different things. Um, For me, I find that repetition and habit building. So I might make myself a self-hypnosis script. Um, But, you know, like with the example of the dog, if I'd had a bad experience as an adult, and then that would be a fear, right? Like, again, the subconscious protecting me, like, oh, I might be afraid of dogs or like car accidents. A lot of times people get in a car accident and they have this, you know, terrifying experience. And then they're having PTSD or fear around that experience afterward. Um, But then there's other experiences that people have that create phobias. And I do like to separate fears and phobias as being two different things because a fear in my mind, is something that is a logical response for right. a period of time, but fades out after a while, right? Um, and that generally would happen on its own, and you probably don't need a therapist for that. Maybe you do, um, especially if it's not happening as quickly as you would like. 
but a phobia tends to be something that gets worse over time and every exposure you have. Um, and this isn't a hundred percent the case, but you know, a majority of the time it's the case that phobias tend to get worse over time. So those tend to be something that people rarely get over on their own and do need help with. So, yeah. yeah. No, of course, of course. And, uh, I mean, you know, obviously there's, there's, uh, there are techniques out there if you're if you're dedicated enough if you if you trust yourself enough i mean the the i always talk about the fast phobia cure from nlp um it it can be effective though i think these things are absolutely much more effective when you're being guided um for sure i i but yeah i mean even that doesn't work sometimes sometimes yeah. those fast phobia things you gotta go you gotta you really have to go deep into the programming and and mm -hmm. um reset stuff I, let me ask you this before we get into dream therapy and whatnot mm -hmm. um what what are some examples of times when the subconscious either yours or somebody else's has surprised you that come to mind um let me think about that for a moment um you know one that that stands out to me is because fears and phobias are one of my specialties i absolutely love them because yeah. they change is generally so quick and so profound for people. Um, and one of the things that surprised me is that I <laughs> one day realized that I had gotten rid of a phobia that I'd had for many, many years that I didn't know was gone until I was able to do the thing or experience the thing without having gone through the therapy. And it was because I was doing so much work with other people on fears and phobias that my own phobia went away. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That's very curious. I mean, did you just you were doing this thing one day and you 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 thought about it and you realized you weren't afraid? I mean, or had you been doing it before and then you noticed it gradually after? I mean, I I tend to discover things uh way after I'm already doing them. It's rare that I'm going, oh, there's a bridge and now I can walk across it. It's uh, I I think I just did this for wow. I'm over it. Um, you know, I mean, what do you, what do you, what was it for you? Yeah, it was basically, I just realized I was doing the thing. So the phobia was um, anything that was like a surprise pop, like uh, champagne corks, um, those things of dough that you get from the grocery store that like when people, you know, start peeling the paper and then they just randomly pop or like a Jack in the box. Um anything like that where there's the anticipation and you're waiting for the pop that you just don't know the timing of it so i think i i think what happened was i was able to uncork a bottle of champagne or uncork a bottle of olive oil or something that i hadn't been able to do for years and i just realized i was like wow i'm not even bothered by this at all and i've actually had experiences where um <laughs> a, a cork was like kind of dangerously shot and like made a bunch of stuff crash down like it was overpressurized and it still didn't bother me after that so it's definitely completely gone now so i've had enough experiences with that to um have it tested over the course of probably five to seven years now yeah that is fascinating uh, and i'm wondering about you know i mean they definitely talk about how you can 
a big practice in in hypnosis and in and change work is the practitioner going there first so i mean even even milton erickson's in puts himself in trance to put other people in trance and a lot of hypnotherapists do that um you know i mean i i am kind of curious about I, I don't know if hypnotists talk about this enough, the 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 side benefits of doing the job and the way it's affected them. I mean, do you do you have a standard kind of procedure for phobias? Do you I mean, does it change for different people? Do you regress them? I mean, I'm curious how <laughs> how all these different suggestions compounded and, and made you get over this thing. If you have any theories. Sure. Well, as far as putting myself into trance, I don't really have to do that because I'm extremely suggestible. Um, I am basically having to count myself up and out of trance more often than going into it. So um, I kind of live in that state <laughs> of trance. Yes. And so that that part's not difficult for me. It's um, you know the like being consciously aware, and and that's one of the things that becoming a hypnotherapist has really helped me with is being aware of when I'm in that trance state versus not and being able to get myself there when I need to. Right. Um, and then um, speaking of trances, I already lost my train of thought. So <laughs> I'm with you there. I'm with you there, though. <laughs> so the technique that I typically use would be systematic desensitization. Now, you can use the fast phobia cure um, with I would test somebody's suggestibility though before right. even trying that. And maybe if they had a deadline, like they needed to get on an airplane the next day, I might use that. Um, but generally I would use systematic desensitization. And for most people, it's usually only one to three sessions anyway. Yeah. But then I use recordings because I'm a big believer in um, repetition as a reinforcer of the changes that you're making in the subconscious mind and it helps them last longer and also if they notice anything starting to come back they have that resource available to them anytime to kind of reiterate reprogram again right. um, so yeah that's that's generally the technique that i use most often have you ever um, gotten lost in trance with a client and had to wake yourself out of it Oh, I mean, I'm basically in trance the entire time. I'm Do you ever, <laughs> are they ever going, hey, wake up, Brit? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not deep in trance, like I'm still functional, but that's just my normal level of functionality is being in trance. Like I said, I'm, I'm hyper suggestible. Like I would be a really good candidate for stage hypnosis. Um, funny enough, I actually worked in a stage hypnosis show for a while. Wow. Um, but, you know, as an assistant, but I, that was before I ever learned anything about hypnosis, but um, yeah. Let's go I, here for a second. Tell me about the life of a, uh, of a hyper-suggestible person. I mean, does that mean you cry during movies more easily? Does that, I, I, I I'm very curious about what the day-to-day -day is of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it could be different for everybody. Um, but yeah, I would say I can, I can be more sensitive um, there are certain times where it also allows me to be disassociated. Mm. So it kind of depends. Like sometimes I am more sensitive and, and then sometimes I'm able to be more disassociated from the empathy or the emotion of things and kind of keep it at a distance um, because of that. Cause it's almost like not even being in my body at times, but 
it's just, it's so normal to me that it's, um, I don't really know how to describe it because I don't know what other people's experiences of not being in trance frequently. Um, but you know, like I said, a lot of dialogue in my mind, a lot of self-conversation, not like I'm hearing different voices, but just like dialogue with myself, you know, yeah, it's internal, internal thoughts. Um, when I'm working with a client, I'm constantly having ideas and figuring out how the words that they spoke to me um, before we went into the trance can be used in the session, like how I can build a world, a rich world using their own words for them to experience while they are in hypnosis. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I think being in trance sometimes actually helps me experience what they're experiencing, especially in terms of like tone and pacing. that slower pace the slower brain waves (laughs) yeah yeah this is uh very interesting i mean i'm I'm going with you on this journey um and i i I, i'm wondering about you know when people talk about this idea of making i mean carl Jung talks about it milton erickson had a variation of it this idea of making the unconscious conscious that's a lot of the work of therapy supposedly uh do do you feel that you are just somebody that things are you're living from a more aligned place do you feel that things being more in this trance state creativity and 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 more just i don't know there's more of a letting go in life that you experience i I, i'm just uh, i'm very fascinated by people that live in this state yeah um i think maybe i was given a little bit more permission to live in that that way than you know a lot of people were you know uh just being a dreamer I didn't really get in trouble for it a whole lot. Like I can only remember a few instances in my life where it was a problem and most of them, you know, around first grade. Um, But after that, I think that because I was able to maintain good grades that I was kind of allowed to daydream. Nobody ever questioned my daydreaming or creativity. And so I feel like I, I have an unusual experience of having permission to do that a lot more than other people. So yes, for me, I would say it's more creative and I think I do experience things a little bit on the sensitive side sometimes, but, you know, again, there's the disassociation too. So, um, yeah. Am I getting in? I think every day I get more in touch with the subconscious and making it conscious. And I hopefully do that for my clients as well. Um, but it's a progress, you know, I mean, I think about myself five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and yeah, I was way more living (laughs) in my subconscious and just kind of going along with the flow of life rather than consciously directing it. And while I've had some amazing life experiences, it's kind of empowering now to have these tools that allow me to direct the direction that I want to go more often. Now my problem is that I have 
so many things that I want to do and only a finite amount of hours in the day and a finite amount of energy. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, this is very interesting. Okay. I, I, I'm fascinated by this because <laughs> this is a oh man, the West you, I'm all on the East coast. You're in the West coast. This is, this is the West coast chill. They talk about it's a whole different lifestyle. <laughs> things are upside down over here. Okay. So here's my question for you. You're telling me that back you were following more of your subconscious when you were younger, and now you have more tools to shape it in a way that's more helpful. So, and, and, and I find this interesting because, and I've talked about this recently in my podcast and um, just reflecting on, I don't know, this spiritual awakening that people are going on supposedly, um, this notion that. I feel that most people in New York City and on the East Coast would benefit from you 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. They should be doing the opposite to left brain, to conscious. Following their subconscious would probably bring them a little more joy. Um, I mean, what? What are your thoughts on, you know, there, there, there's research out there. There's, uh, I, I talked about this guy on the maybe the last show uh, or one of one of the shows recently, uh, Ian McGilchrist, who wrote the book Master and the Emissary, um, talking about how society in general has become more left brained uh, than we used to be. I mean, I'm going Brit. I feel like we should go where you were. I think we should all follow this side of ourselves. What would you say to those people? Well, I don't know about their experience, but for me, you know, impulse control and you know some of those other subconscious activities were probably a necessary thing for me to experience but they're not going to be beneficial to me at this point in my life so what are we talking raves we're talking <laughs> well i no i'm an introvert so i kind of went the opposite direction i grew up in oregon in the countryside you know very rural and apparently that wasn't rural enough for me. So the moment I turned 18, I bought a plane ticket to Alaska and then lived there for 10 years. Um, and for a very large portion of that, I lived in tree houses kind of out in the middle of the woods that were just off grid, illegal. Wow. <laughs> tree houses. So, you know, I mean, was it an amazing experience? Absolutely. Would I trade it for anything? No. Do I still want to live like that? Not really. Like I, I wanted to have other different experiences in life too. And so um, I think the ability to change and grow in, in my case was helpful. I might've been just a little bit too impulsive and lack of control. Um, but I know what you're saying about people being a little bit too left-brained and as far as them going into their subconscious more, I think yes, as long as they don't have a negativity bias where they're just ruminating, right? Right. Like if you want to daydream, you want it to be pleasant and not worrying, right? Well, like look, worrying. I mean, I, I don't know, and I think this will lead us into dream therapy, um, I think, I hope, I'm gradually kind of making the transition here, but, you know, I, I, I suppose... The closest thing I may have, sorry to sorry to all the religious listeners out there, but the closest thing, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a heathen right now and say that the closest thing that I may have to a faith is in 
this other mind, this well, we'll call. I mean, some people use this term, the other than conscious mind, um, that at a certain level, and and I I suppose you gotta have to have that faith as a hypnotist because you know even when you're working with someone, you're you're you're. It's it's pretty standard practice, and you can tell me if you, you disagree in your work, but pretty standard practice to validate what the subconscious has done, the reasons it's it's created this phobia or trauma or whatever it has. It's it's doing it as an there's usually a positive intention, and then you you validate it, you reframe it, you sometimes you even negotiate with it and mm-hmm. and make a better shift for that person that's that's going to be holistically better for that person and then the subconscious goes oh yeah that's a good reason for me to change this and then so so the idea that you can negotiate with this thing that that there is a i suppose i guess i would say an intelligence that and and that's really what i'm getting at this notion of having faith in some kind of intelligence beyond what we know consciously so from a broader level zooming out I, I know there are people out there and I know there's spiritual practitioners out there that might say, yeah, if you felt you should live off grid and that's what your subconscious was telling you to do, it has a greater purpose. It is telling you to do this because that's who you're meant to be. That's your past. And and then maybe your subconscious after you're doing that. Maybe you, you realize it's a change and then your subconscious is adjusting. There's almost but but. I don't know. I mean, sometimes I feel that maybe that's maybe that's a little too much trust in something to always follow it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I believe it has an intelligence. I believe that there is some thing as being too impulsive. Based on your life experience, how much of the subconscious should we follow and when should we be discerning of those inner callings? I love this question. Um, Well, intuition is the first thing that comes up, right? Like regardless of what your spiritual or religious beliefs are. um, And a lot of times our intuition is trained out of us. And I think that that is unfortunate. If we were all allowed to follow our gut feelings, we didn't have that trained out of us at a young age. I feel like we might trust our subconscious intelligence a lot more deeply and um i like many people had a lot of parts of my my intuition trained out of me um however there were some parts that were really strong and i never really understood it i'm not a super woo woo or super metaphysical person but i'm i you know am absolutely mind blown by life itself you know to me that is you know, metaphysical on its own level, like just the miracle of life. Um, and the, the thing about intuition, we don't know how to define it scientifically yet. Yet everybody has had this experience of walking into a room and knowing what mood somebody was in without even hearing their voice or seeing their face or even seeing them they might even be around a corner and just feeling that that vibe for lack of a better term um 
what is that? You know, it that is something that it is an intelligence on a deep primal level that we all have. It's cellular, you know. Um, there are how do you know when somebody when somebody's eyes are on you and you can just look to right where they are? How do you know which direction those eyes are coming from? You know, there are these these things that our brains can do that are just so absolutely mind-blowing and there isn't really an explanation for that yet there are some interesting things that I've heard that might be kind of along that same vein um that is in the field of forensics where they're starting to be able to imprint your not your aura in the like energetic sense but like literally the chemicals and the pheromones and the things everybody has their own um imprint that they leave in a room so they're starting to be able to expand like how long they've been able to tell somebody was in a room for like forensic purposes what are those things that we are detecting like are we detecting somebody's mood through pheromones in the air like who knows but you know for the time being it's pretty mystical and fascinating and interesting and I do think that that is something we have all had to trust on a gut level at some point in our lives like knowing when a place was not safe and needing to leave you know yeah I'm sure most people have had that experience or just getting you know a spine chill when you meet somebody and then you find out later that they <laughs> you know were not a good person um so you believe that's the subconscious would you put that in that category I would put that in that category yeah I would. I do think it brings, if we're listening, I think it brings it to our conscious awareness. Ideally, if we haven't had it trained out of us. Hmm. For you, were was there, <laughs> fascinating about this off-grid Brit, uh, you know, were, was there a, were there words in your head? Was it a pull for you that said, I'm living this, I'm going to Alaska? I mean, can you, can you recall? at all what it was like um I think that I what I really wanted was travel and adventure but again introvert um so I wanted to either go to New Zealand India or Alaska were my top three choices of places that I wanted to go um and I happened to find a ticket to Alaska for I think it was less than a hundred dollars it was, yeah. I think it was December 5th of 95. And I happened to have a friend who was living up there for a few months that had a house that I could kind of take over the lease on. And it just seemed like a, um, a good opportunity. So I, I did that. And, um, and your subconscious was with you there. It said, yeah, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, it did. It absolutely drove me because being an introvert and being in places of discomfort is also difficult for me. So the pull must have been pretty strong because there, you know, it, it has to be to get me to go places. So it must have been, you know, it's been a long time, so I don't recall a lot of specifics, but I do know that I, I really, I mean, I had left the second I turned 18. I was like, I'm getting out of my small town. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to experience life in the world and expand my horizons. And um, 
I was an avid reader growing up. And one of the last books I had read was um, I had reread Call of the Wild. Oh, yes. So, you know, classic Jack London. And um, so Alaska was on my mind because of that book. And then it was, you know, one of my top three choices of places to go. So it just ended up working out. And then, of course, I fell in love with it. And so I spent the majority of the next decade there. That's very interesting. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe this is just farm girl life that following following nature in this way uh, automatically attunes you. And I, mean, I know that uh, one of your I mean, I love this. Your Instagram is called the hiking hypnotist. I mean, yeah. Thank you for for not being someone that just sits in an office all day. I mean, uh, the hiking hypnotist. What is? Uh, do, do do I mean? Uh, you, you, yeah, there's still a call to nature. Clearly, after all these years. Yeah, yeah. Well, originally, um, I think we were talking about this before we started recording. I was a I was a chef. I was a private chef to, at a software company. And I made international cuisine. And on my wow. days off, I would go backpacking and hiking. And like nature has always been incredibly important to me. Um, and then I had the car accident that sent me down the path of becoming <clears throat> a hypnotherapist. And so I changed it from the hiking chef to the hiking hypnotist um, because I'm not going to be a chef anymore. But <laughs> I still love nature. So, yeah. Yeah. Did the call to learn hypnosis feel different than the call to become a chef? Yes, because I kind of fell into chefing. It wasn't an aspiration. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had grown up, my my dad and my grandmother, most of the people in my family were excellent cooks, but I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with them. And so I just had an um, unintentional training in culinary arts and international culinary arts. So I knew how to cook different types of food. And um, I was cooking with a girlfriend of mine that I was visiting her. And I, I don't remember which state I was living in at the time, but she was living in Los Angeles and um, she was friends with another roommate of, or she was roommates with another friend of mine went to visit them. I made them dinner one night and they're both big foodies. And, um, the, one of them was working at the software company, but was about to move out of town and didn't want to leave them hanging. So she was looking to find another chef and said, Oh my God, like your food was great. It's right up their alley. They would love it. Are you looking for a job? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> actually. Yeah. I am. And so I just got hired there and then I stayed on for 10 years because it was an amazing experience. But this is aspir. I mean, what, 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 what made hypnosis more aspirational for you? Um, I also somewhat fell into hypnosis. Um, <laughs> there yeah. Are- what is this falling into things? I mean, this is what I'm trying to, <laughs> is this your, do we, do we advise this kind of living for, I mean, it seems like you're in a good place. So I'm still pro following your subconscious to some level. Um, yeah. But, but I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of cocked down or you, you feel like you have evolved beyond just falling into things to a more actively crafting your life. So I'm just curious about where the tension between you falling into things and you now being like, 
I, I'm, I'm going to be more intentional about yeah. what I'm putting out in the world, where those things meet. Yes. So I am becoming more intentional and that's been a recent development in, you know, the last five years or so. Um, however, because I am interested in so many things, I kind of start a million projects at once and then things, I kind of just fall into the right one. And that way I don't have to make a decision, right? <laughs> yeah. This way I'm doing not for everyone. Well, I was going to also say, I mean, by the way, <laughs> it's not one or the other. If you can actually, as a matter of fact, if you figure out a way to structure your life so that you know what you want and then you flow until you just find your way in it, then yeah. that's actually more that that is like the, a more realistic approach Um, a, a, as people, you know, continually over and over talk about productivity. I mean, the idea that you can go from step A to B and actually create a life step by step in the order that you think you have to do is just not human. It doesn't allow for the possibilities of life in the, in the, um, you know, the non uh, linear aspects of things. So in a way, maybe your subconscious was gifting you a, a, a uh, unintentional intentionality. Yeah, I think that could be it. I'm so interested in so many things and there, you know, if I were going off my dream life, I would think I was an architect because I dream in architecture all the time. You know, oh, that that's is interesting. One of the many things that I could have fallen into, but that wasn't a path that I took. So, um, you know, there, there, it's, there are so many things I'm interested in and I also have a hard time doing the same thing all day long every day so for me engaging my interest and my curiosity is fundamentally a necessity it's not even a, a desire like I absolutely yeah. have to do it or I wouldn't be good at what I do is that and, why you have to do dreams I mean I you know I how did you get into dreams because I must say that I know for myself as somebody that studied hypnosis the notion of sitting down with someone and just being the stop smoking guy and yeah. just sitting there and doing that over and over. I mean, I think I'd get bored of it too, but at the very least with dreams, there's a generative quality to the hypnosis work. There's a creative aspect. Um, you're never getting the same thing. I mean, I, I'm very curious about your relationship to dreams. How'd you get into it and how did you tie it to your hypnosis work? Sure. And not every client comes to me for dreams. Um, so I do use it frequently, but a lot of people don't have dream recall. Um, if mm. they want it or they start having, you know, they can only remember a few dreams, then I can start there with helping them. But not everybody is interested in that aspect of it. But for the people who are, um, it gives me a lot of feedback about what's going on in their subconscious mind. Um if they are having, you know, PTSD dreams, you know, that's a direction that then I know how to help them with that. If their dreams are showing me that there might be having something physiological going on, I can have them talk to their doctor about like what medications they're on or whether they're having blood sugar crashes in their sleep. Um, you know, there's a lot of like physiological indicators. So not all dreams are psychologically based. Um, a lot of it can be your body just going into fight flight. And so um, 
that is something that occurs frequently. So I'm able to help people, you know, talk to their doctor and figure out like physiological problems that they might be having um, so that they're not associating psychological problems from their physiologically based dreams. Hmm. That's a really when, did, when did that start? When did you bring dream work? Was that part of your training? I mean, how did you even think to to go into dreams? Yeah, well, I, you know, again, I kind of fell into it. It was a very small part of our curriculum at, at HMI. Um, but the class was, I think, only like two and a half hours long, and it left me completely jazzed and so psyched on dreams. I didn't even realize I was interested in dreams. Like I had kept dream journals in the past, you know, for a year here or there, but mostly for entertainment purposes, because a lot of times they were really funny. Like it's another thing I dream in is stand up comedy. So like <laughs> a lot of times they were more just entertaining. And so I like, oh, that's hilarious. I'll write that down. Or I draw the houses that I dream, you know, in case yeah. it's a house that I ever want to build or somebody has the right piece of property for it or whatever. Um, so it was more for that. I wasn't really interpreting them at that point. But when I had that class, it, it, set a spark in me and I ended up with a million more questions. And so because the class gave a huge amount of knowledge and the, the small amount that was provided, but then I had, you know, a hundred times more questions, I started going through those questions one by one and fleshing out my own system and my own answers to those questions and so because it was so much information I kind of compiled it into a notebook for myself so that I had my own reference manual and then eventually that turned into the book um, but while I was in my residency I started interpreting anybody's dreams who would send them to me so I interpreted help I didn't interpret them in that I tell people what their dreams mean I had a conversation with them and said, here are the tools, you know, if X, then you apply that here. Now you tell me why. And then we kind of put it all together, like solving a puzzle together. Um, oh, so I hundreds of dreams, <laughs> hundreds of dreams. This is yeah, okay. Wow. I do. I do. Now I do have a lot of questions about this. Okay. So let me ask you this. What were some of the let's go back for a little bit to the to, to the class you were taking as part of your hypnosis training? Um, what were some of the initial questions that you had that you felt weren't answered about this point? Like what was sparking your curiosity about this dream curriculum that made you go? I need to know more about this. You know, to be really specific with that, I might have to go back through my notes. But just in general, there was like a framework to help tease out information from the subconscious to then help your clients. So that was like something that Dr. Kappas used a lot within his practice, but it had kind of, it wasn't really used so much in like the more modern teachers. Like, like I said, there was one, one class on it. Um, and yeah. so it, it was apparently used more by Dr. Kappas back in the day, but again, he used it to just kind of tease out subconscious. So you're looking at things like emotions and then the, the physiological versus psychological. So he had those tools, but the order he did things in kind of ended up not really making sense for me. And then some of the, the ways that he categorized things were, um, 
just left me with more questions, but there's been so many dream studies I was able to go back through like actual literature and white papers and learn about what parts of the brain are active and like what's going on. And from people who had studied dreams from the scientific perspective and the psychological perspective and like had gathered thousands of dreams and crunched all the data to kind of understand what, how to fill in those gaps and how to rearrange it for a way that made sense to me. So this is good. This is good because I was about to add, you, you kind of answered the question, the, uh, the the challenge question i suppose that i that i i can imagine people from the outside going which is dreams yeah but isn't that it's been dispelled freud that was the whole thing freud used hypnosis with dreams you know we we looked at this we 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 at one point assessed dreams and we realized it was kind of this you know made up uh field where we're just looking you know it's a i mean I, i'm curious what is your answer to that i mean what would you say why are dreams worth interpreting and and how can we know that there's something substantial there that can help us uh make the transformations we want well i think that that's a very individualized question like i said not everybody wants to interpret their dream life they might have a very unpleasant dream life some people want to suppress dreams and there are ways that you can do that too. Um, so we have a dream life and we have a waking life and sometimes they're congruent and sometimes they're incongruent. You might be a super happy person and your waking life, but have like these horrific dreams and maybe you don't want to live that life. Um, maybe you have physiologically triggered dreams. So, so for me, that would be the main thing that I think is super important that a lot of people miss is being super traumatized by their dreams that were caused by a physiological cause so that they could actually fix, you know, if they wanted to. Um, blood sugar crashes being the main one. A lot of times people who eat desserts late at night and then you're going eight hours without eating while you're sleeping, um, that happened to my mom. She, you know, went through a period of grief and started eating dessert every night and then she was having these horrific dreams and she all, all she needed to do was eat protein before bed instead of the sugar and then she was fine but i was able to tell her hey that's a physiological dream that's probably blood sugar let's you know try getting you some protein before bed see if that helps if not you know maybe go check out your you know something with your doctor but the way you can tell the difference between a physiological and a psychological dream is that again, you go into fight flight. So when you're having a normal dream, there's a story arc, right? Like it's the whole hero's journey. It's built into us and in our on a fundamental level into our DNA. Every culture in the world has the same kind of storytelling um, yeah. structure built into it. So if your dream starts at one place, and then goes to another, and you might experience a flow of emotions that change over the course of a dream, that's probably a psychological dream. If you are running in place from a monster on a loop over and over and over again, it's a pretty good indicator that you're probably in some sort of fight flight, and that maybe a medication, uh, hormones, that happens a lot, like a lot of times sex dreams, um, can be physiologically caused because when people go through puberty or menopause or, you know, different 
heightened uh, hormonal stages in their life, they might have these like really disturbing sex dreams, but it's just hormones going through their body. But there isn't really a full story arc. It's like, oh, I, you know, cheated or something. And they have this like really guilt ridden thing going on, but it's because they were in fight flight, not because they psychologically want to cheat on their partner or anything like that. So being able to differentiate like, oh, wow, I, you know, probably was that new medication I'm taking or wow, I'm going through this hormonal stage in my life or, you know, wow, I've really been eating like crap the last week. No wonder why I'm having nightmares, you know, waking up sweating and like overly emotional and having, you know, a really intense nightmare that doesn't really have a full story to go with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I, if, if, if I could give the piece of advice to the whole world, like that, I wish they knew about dreams, it would be to differentiate between those two so that they're not associating psychological trauma from something that has nothing to do with their psychology. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, you mentioned in your book, Human Dreaming, the dynamics of dream interpretation, um, that there are, well, seven, right? Seven uh, types of, or seven components of dreams. Um, what, what, what do you mean by components? Um, so they are like the different aspects. So like the emotions of the dream, you mm. are um, an important arc in psychological dreams. In the physiological dreams, you kind of just stop interpreting there because it doesn't have a psychological meaning. You need to figure out what's going on in your body. In the psychological dreams, you have the dream type, the dream subtype. So like, say you were having a dream that um, was reinforcing a new habit, right? Like say you were uh, just learning how to play basketball and you're dreaming a lot about basketball and it's like reinforcing that new habit and you're practicing free throws in your sleep. That would be a reinforcing dream. That would be a, a type, your dream type. The subtype would be how you feel during it. Is it a fun dream? Is it stressful? Is it a nightmare? You know, the subtype, is it joyous? Like the kind of sensations that you're having and then you have the, you know, is it psychological? Is it physiological? What are the emotions of the dream? Um, what's literal and what's symbolic? Mm. Um, and a lot of times in many other styles of interpreting dreams, people immediately, that's the first thing they check is the symbology. So it would be like you wake up from that running in place from a monster dream. Well, it's like, oh, well, what's the monster about? Or like, why was I cheating on my spouse? And it goes, you know, maybe Freudian really quickly. And it's, you know, always about your mom or your your genitals or something, you know. Um, but in my observation, you could kind of tease out the difference between the literal and the symbolic meanings. Um, so I had a client yesterday that had a very literal dream. And it was pretty obvious and able, you know, we were able to discuss that and it just kind of went with the fact pattern of her waking life. And there was nothing really symbolic about it. But a lot of times the part of our brain that does imagery, like your emotions are very active, but the imagery parts of your brain are kind of all over the place. Mm. So it can be like, sometimes the images are symbolic of something but sometimes it's just a random 
thing that's thrown in there. And that's why the emotions are important because it literally tells you what you're processing. We are emotional beings. That is what our entire lives are about. If you don't have, you know, your other senses of sight or hearing or smell or taste, what are you left with? You're left with your emotional processing, right? You're, that's just, that is your experience as a living being. That is the part of storytelling that makes us human is, is processing emotions, right? Going through the experience of our life, releasing things, learning new things, integrating those new things, um, practicing those new things. And dreams yeah. kind of all of those purposes. You believe in the power of the dream. I mean, some people might not, though. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. is there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what about those people that are going? Yeah, I just think this is just some. we don't understand it. The science is. I mean, what what has the science shown us? About I absolutely. I absolutely agree with them. I mean, the science isn't that hard and fast on it. Um, and that's it's perfectly fine. Like if they I'm not, you know, again, I'm. I'm not the person who's reading deeply into the symbology of everything that's in people's dreams. I'm just not. These are tools that you, like, you will know what your dream is about. I can never tell somebody what their dream is about. I can give them these tools and show them how to use them. And then they can decide whether that dream was about something or what they're processing. So I will often ask questions like, you mentioned you had this series of emotions in this order is there anywhere else in your life that you might have had that experience of those emotions and then they'll be like oh yeah you know but that person wasn't in my dream and then it's like okay you start looking at the other parts of it start teasing out what are the literal things like oh yeah you know it is a work thing so they were at work but it was like all different people that they didn't know so those people were symbolic their background hmm. the literal part it was me processing these emotions from this experience that I had at work. And that's really as far as you need to go. Like some people want to go into it further, but for me, the main part would be, is this psychological or physiological? If you're having a physiological dream, you might want to take that to your doctor. Like something might be going on, you know, with your medication or your hormone levels or your blood sugar, <laughs> you know, these are common problems that people have. So for me, it's not always about the symbolism of the dream or being really woo-woo with it. It's practical information. You so are you're asleep not... for... Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you're asleep for one third of your life. Of course, there's going to be important information. We go through our whole day. What percentage of that do you think is valuable? Mm. You know, That's how much of point. each day do we remember? Not much. Just, you know, whenever we get a new piece of information that's useful, we'll know it and we'll store it. It's kind of the same thing with dreams. You know, if you're not, if you're not having dreams or remembering dreams, you might not need to. If you have a dream that you remember and really sticks with you, it's probably something going on that you need to pay attention to. If it keeps coming back over and over again, that's your subconscious mind saying, hey, please pay attention. I'm trying to send you these signals let's deal with this. That's to me, if that was the, the maximum amount that people got out of their dreams, that's totally fine. You don't need to overanalyze every aspect of your dreams the same way you don't need to overanalyze every aspect of your waking life. But is there useful information that happens when you're sleeping? Absolutely. 
I look at my sleep data almost every day. And especially if I wake up and then write down dreams, I'll see what part of my REM cycle I was in. And I kind of just, you know, have my own ways of interpreting what that means for my, for my sleep and my emotional processing and all of that. But, you know, most people don't need to get that deep into it. <laughs> really don't. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you believe, I, I, I sometimes don't believe people that say, oh, I don't really dream or I, because they're not fully sure about it or they say, yeah, no, I don't, I don't really, I don't remember my dreams at all. I mean, what's going on with those people? Are they, are they blocking some kind of sub, the subconscious message that wants to come through? I mean, what, what, what do you find is typical in people that really don't pay a lot of credence to their dreams? Yeah, they might be blocking. Um, they might not be ready to process that stuff consciously. You know, if it, if it's coming up and you remember it, it's probably important. If, if it's not, and your dream recall is suppressed, there might be a good reason for it. So I'm not going to try to, I would never try to force people or encourage people to have dream recall unless they have a reason for wanting it. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily inherently important for every single person to do. Um, you know, and like I said, some people just have just the way their dreams are, are very unpleasant, even if they're a pleasant, positive person during the day. So they might not want to, you know, relive those. It might what is the subconscious doing there? I mean, why why would it punish someone? What I think is it's just processing? So it's not necessarily punishment. I think it's just probably they're processing. And, you know, we as humans generally tend to have a negative bias. Um in general and like the way that our thoughts go most people tend to think more negative thoughts than they do positive thoughts so it makes sense that a lot of times people remember their not so great dreams right um, but yeah or is it just the positive person isn't i mean what also maybe we definitely our definition of positive is different i mean I, i've certainly met positive people that i'm sitting there going Oh yeah, there's like a shadow inside of you, the shadow part that needs to come out. There's a darkness here. I bet yeah, and maybe maybe those are the people that more likely have dreams because they're presenting a positive side of things while covering something up. I mean, I, I don't know. Or is that what you mean? Or do you just mean people that are, you know, hippy dippy, uh, you know, where you are in Oregon, uh, you know, people that are out in nature. I mean, they do these people who are integrated nature loving people that are soulful beautiful souls in and out have horrendous nightmares uh, well i hadn't really thought of it as far as like hippy dippy or being new agey or anything like that i think it was more like you know when you just meet people and they're just upbeat yeah yeah but real upbeat is there there yeah, you know there's a difference upbeat. like it's part of their personality like they're just right. you know like I'm kind of more even keel. I don't tend to get super excited and I don't tend to get, you know, depressed or anything. I'm just kind of like a little more on the monotone <laughs> end of the spectrum. Yeah, you seem more integrated, which would make me think that your dreams are probably not nightmares. Potentially. I do have nightmares. Yeah, I absolutely do have really? nightmares. I had one the other night. I didn't write it down, so I no longer fully recall what it was. Um but it was pretty unpleasant. But I also have um, a lot of reinforcing dreams, which is like reinforcing new habits, especially because mm -hmm. I'm consciously changing my habits a lot more these days. And then I have the joyful subcategory. So a lot of times that's 
me being in nature, taking photos, like some natural phenomenon will happen, like just a massive geyser and then, you know, like rainbows shooting through it or something. And I'm like often taking pictures being like, wow, this is amazing. Just like mind blowing. Um, but I think maybe because I do practice dream recall to a certain extent, I mean, I'm not obsessive about it, but when I have those dreams, I take a moment to truly enjoy them and appreciate them. And so I think because I do that, I tend to have more of those. Um, and those yeah. are like way more over the top and like, you know, woo than I am in real life. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. So, so it goes both ways still. I mean, yeah. it's the human experience, the ups, the downs. <laughs> um, but I guess my question for you then becomes about the way we are relating to our dreams because I'm wondering and, and I'm sure you, you go into some of this. I know you have uh, journals um, specifically for this work. You have a human dreaming journal. Um, and I'm sure, you know, you, you delve into some of these practices in your book, uh, Human Dreaming, the Dynamics of Dream Interpretation. Um, so I suppose my question is this. Uh, what happens when you are not just falling into your dreams? And you decide to be intentional with them. People talk about this. I mean, I've heard hypnotists talk about it. I don't know if it's really ever worked for me, but but then again, I feel that I probably haven't dedicated enough time to it where they say, you know, okay, before I go to bed tonight, subconscious, I would love to have a an insight, maybe in my dreams tonight, maybe another night where, um, you know, I, I have more of an insight onto the 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 next career move I should make that kind of thing and then your subconscious might respond to it sometimes people talk about that or or um even just noticing your dreams dream journaling the the that Heisenberg principle of uh you know it, once you're observing something then it changes the relationship of it I mean what have you found are some of the dynamics once you become aware I I know this leads a little bit into the lucid dreaming path but but we don't need to even go there i'm just curious about um you know the conscious acts that one could do with dreams and how that shifted um in your experience with yourself as well as your clients yeah absolutely so dream incubation which is what you were talking about where you're kind of planting a seed for what you would like to dream about that is actually very well studied and is a real thing. Um, we are in hypnosis generally the 30 minutes before we fall asleep and the 30 minutes that we wake up. Some of us, you know, more or less, depending on how quickly you wake up, I might be in it more of like an hour <laughs> in the morning. Um, but yeah, so when you're going to sleep, you're already going into that, you know, alpha theta state and headed towards sleep, right? So you're going through that transition time that is hypnosis. The content that you consume during that time and things that you write and things that you say to yourself will generally appear in your dreams in some form or another. You might not recognize it um, because again, some things are just symbolic and they're not literal. Um, they're just the image that your mind pulls up for the feeling. Um, that you're having. Um, so yes, you can ask your brain to do creative things. It's the same thing as like when you're in the shower and like an idea comes to you after you have 
stopped thinking about it because you're just letting yourself go into that light state. Um, So yes, you can seed the type of dream that you want to have. You might not, it might not happen the way you think (laughs) it's going to, because you can't really control that. Um, But that is a little different than lucid dreaming. And me personally, I don't have a problem with lucid dreaming, but I don't typically recommend it to my clients unless they're having sleep paralysis issues. Because in sleep paralysis, if you do lucid dreaming training, then you're much more likely to be able to pull yourself out of the horrific experience of being in sleep paralysis. Um, That training is really good for it. Um, But the reason why I don't generally recommend it to anybody else is because when you are spending time in lucid dreaming, you're getting a lot less of the brainwaves that you need for like rest because you kind of are in that halfway to wake up state it especially if you have insomnia or you're not getting enough hours of sleep anyway it kind of takes away from the deep sleep and the REM that you need to be fully functional the next day so it can kind of take away from the restful nature of sleep um and while it is fun it's not necessarily problem solving the same way that dream incubation can um that may be different for other people and there may be different experiences that people have with lucid dreaming. Um, for me, I tend to lucid dream if I do a slow wake up alarm, like instead of a, you know, loud, like that, like pulls you out of sleep so quickly, something that pulls you out of sleep very slowly, I'll tend to lucid dream. And yeah, that's really fun. Um, but as far as like benefits, I would, I would personally tend to use and recommend dream incubation over lucid dreaming wow she's taking away lucid dreaming from us folks no not at all. <laughs> no i know you're not i know you're but it is funny <laughs> that the dreaming person is not as into i mean i feel that's such a people love it people love it in this <laughs> this uh you know halfway woo woo hypnosis mind are people love this notion of being able to go in there and control and problem solve and and generate new ideas but but you are you think there's a different way i think that lucid dreaming can be good for some people in some circumstances but i think if you um, like I said, if you have sleep paralysis, great. If you are getting enough sleep already and you have enough deep sleep and you're getting enough REM, excellent. You don't yeah. have to get up anywhere. Absolutely do lucid dreaming. If you're like a majority of people and you're barely getting enough sleep as it is, or you have had challenges with insomnia, maybe not the best practice for you. There is a wonderful um, article by La Carmina, who is a travel blogger um, and author. Um, I don't remember the exact title, but it's something to the effect of how I travel during lockdown using using lucid dreaming. That's an excellent use of it. She was sleeping 10, 11, 12 hours a night. So she was getting enough regular sleep. And then she was using lucid dreams to travel to Japan and have these experiences in the markets and the nightclubs and things because she couldn't travel during COVID. And that was, you know, her, her life. (laughs) So she was just doing it in lucid dreaming. That's an excellent use of lucid dreaming. So I don't want to poo poo lucid dreaming. I'm just saying for the majority of people, it doesn't have 
a whole lot of practical applications compared to um, dream, dream incubation, which literally takes one minute or less and can yeah. have some great results. So that's all I'm saying. Okay. I want to ask, this is good. <laughs> I want to ask you some quick hit questions. Um, very briefly, precognitive dreams. Does it happen? Do you see these things happen with people where they dream of somebody, you know, passing away and then it happens? Um, how often do you encounter that? What is your interpretation? Um, yes, I I do see that. They're not as common because they tend to kind of happen in the middle of the night, um, like in your second REM cycle. Um, that's not 100% true, you know, because everybody's a little bit different. But as a general rule, they tend to kind of be the middle of the night dreams that you wake up from. Um, so as long as it's not physiological and you're waking up in the middle of the night, um, I call them predictive dreams. And along the same lines of the intuitive stuff we were talking about before, like just how you inherently know somebody's mood when you walk into a room or you can tell when somebody's looking at you and from what direction, it's kind of along the same lines of those, like your subconscious is gathering information all day long, every day from the time you were born through now. And it has all of the data that it decided to keep to keep you safe and to bring you pleasure. And that's the, you know, the two functions of the subconscious mind. So your brain is going to take all of that and it's going to process things that you might not have been aware of on the conscious level. And it's going to predict scenarios that you might either be likely to go through or that you might be facing emotionally and to help you practice for it. Um, so that's my take on those. I will say that people have had ones that are, I have no idea how to explain and I love that stuff too, but I just don't, I don't have explanations for it and I don't want to put any theology or idea in anybody's head because it really needs to come from them themselves Yes. their understanding and interpretation of it. Um, the whole idea behind my method is that any thought process, any culture, any religion should be able to use it and apply it to their own culture and belief system. There's no belief structure put in it. It has to do with how your brain works culturally, emotionally. Some so people we don't can't even join your cult. Correct. I would okay. be a very bad cult leader. However, I am That's absolutely what they all say. by, by yes. uh, you know, coercive control. And that was, I was listening to your episode earlier about NLP and narcissism. And it's, it's a subject that I think about a lot. And I would love to hear more from you on that because I do use NLP, but I'm very cautious about how I use it. Mm. And um you know, yes sets is something that I don't think you mentioned in that episode that I, I think is really common. Oh, yeah. A lot yeah. of situations, sales, coercive control. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll open loop on that for people. Look up yes sets. I can do an episode on that sometime. Um, you also, okay, uh, look, you, well, first of all, Everybody's got to check this website out because this is where it all is. BrittSheflin.com. We will uh, we'll link it in the show notes. 
Um, you know, there's you you can measure your suggestibility for the hypnosis process, which is pretty cool. Um, find out your suggestibility type. Uh, you can there's links to well your your social media, your podcast, um, human dreaming, and the book and the workbook. Um, what are you doing on the podcast? What what or what was your intention? I mean, you're exploring dreams. It looks like from many different angles. Yeah, you know, it started out as being purely dreams, but then I wanted to dive into people's aspirational dreams. So like their waking dreams, we use the word dream in so many different ways that I kind of ended up exploring it in a lot of different ways. But I do always talk about some sort of sleep dream content during every interview. And we didn't get to talk at all about your dream life. So I might have to have you on the podcast and uh, delve into your subconscious mind a little bit. Oh boy. Okay. She's just going to go. This guy wants to be a cult leader. That's it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, true. Um, no, no, we, we could get into that for sure. You know, one more question before we go, I, I do want to ask you, I had someone recently ask me about hypnosis and dreams. And if they, they, this person said, I love my dream world so much. Could a hypnotist take me who that plays so I can experience that world more. I know you said hypnosis is a different process than dreams in your experience. Um, How would you answer that person? I would say to a certain extent, yes, because, you know, it's all pure creativity and whatever you want, you know, it's kind of almost like lucid dreaming being in hypnosis. Um, I'd say lucid dreaming is more like hypnosis than it is actual dreaming. Um, because of control Um, but yeah a hypnotherapist could actually definitely take you there I mean the same way that being on hallucinogens is nothing like um, being in hypnosis people can have hallucinogenic experiences in hypnosis you can be you know you can have full-on open heart surgery under hypnosis if you're allergic to anesthetics so um, to anesthesia so yeah, I think it's absolutely possible. <laughs> yes, she is. So she is into lucid dreaming at the end of the day, somewhat kind of in the yeah, hypnotic yeah. state, in the hypnotic state. Yes, I do. I do think there are uses for lucid dreaming. I just don't think it's a panacea. Yes. Well, look, I, I'm appreciative of the work you do. The Hiking Hypnotist, Britt Shefflin, and the book, of course, Human Dreaming. The Dynamics of Dream Interpretation. Such an interesting topic. I'm curious, uh, based on your research with clients, what more things uh, you put out there. And and stay tuned for her to break down the weirdness that's going on inside my head on your show. Um, human Dreaming. I, I'm exci- I'd be excited to come on. I, I, I need a lot of help. Uh, so maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, <laughs> yes. Britt Shefflin, thank you so much again for coming out. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate it. And I just have to say your voice is amazing. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank great you. for podcasting and great for hypnosis. So good luck with your cult. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Britt Shefflin. And my gosh, did she know the way to pull on my heartstrings. When a woman tells me I could be a great cult leader, I mean, I 
Uh, I can't think of a more romantic gesture. I want to thank Ronnie McGilvery for the theme music. I want to thank Zero Boy for the pre-theme music. Sigmund Freud. He was a great therapist, as we learned. In your dreams. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Take care, everybody.